The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, monsters, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Four years after he was bludgeoned to death by his own father, the Wolfman has risen from the grave to murder innocent bystanders once more. After escaping from a hospital in Cardiff, Larry Talbot decides the only solution is an immediate end to his own life, once and for all. But how do you kill what's already dead? Fortunately, the old gypsy woman, Maliva, knows of a man who might be able to help. Dr. Frankenstein. Together they make their way to the little village of Vesaria, where they discover only the ruins of Frankenstein's castle. After releasing Frankenstein's monster from his icy tomb, Larry frantically searches for Frankenstein's diary, which just might contain the information he so desperately needs. But with the monster loose in a town still reeling from its last encounter, and a full moon on the rise, it's only a matter of time before the torches are lit and the sparks start flying. Get your popcorn ready and prepare for the fight of the titans as we discuss Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. To a new world. Gods and monsters. Listen to them. Children of the night. It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? I'll show you who I am and what I am. You're insane. I tell you I killed a wolf, a plain ordinary wolf. By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved, how it adapted itself to this world. He went for a little walk. He did his face. Welcome to The Monsters That Made Us, the podcast where we celebrate the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios' classic monster series. Today we're talking about the fifth film in the Frankenstein franchise and the second Wolfman film. It's Universal's first ever monster mashup, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I'm the invisible Dan Colon, and joining me as always is my co-host, fresh from the grave himself, monster Mike Manzi. How are you, Mike? It's going good, Dan. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble. Here we are with the first of Universal's monster rallies. As Val Luton's more psychological unseen horrors were all the rage over at RKO, Universal was redoubling their efforts with their classic monsters, which by this point were more or less on their last legs. I mean, they just weren't as popular as they had once been in the 30s, and they were now pretty much considered kids' entertainment. But for the monster diehards, what could be more exciting than multiple horror stars appearing in a movie together? I mean, you gotta remember, this was before Godzilla vs. King Kong, way before Freddy vs. Jason. This was unprecedented. Now, as we get through the next couple of years, we'll get more of these films, like House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, and later on, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, all of which feature three, four, even five monsters. But the whole idea of bringing Universal's iconic characters together began when screenwriter Kurt Siodmak made a joke while having lunch with producer George Wagner. Now, he said, quote, I was sitting down at the Universal commissary having lunch with George Wagner, and I said, George, why don't we make a picture? Frankenstein wolfs the meat man, uh, meets the wolf man. He didn't laugh. This was during wartime. I wanted to buy an automobile and I needed a new writing job so I could be able to afford it. George would see me every day and ask me if I had bought the car yet. I said, George, can I get a job? He said, sure, you'll get a job when you buy the car. Well, the day finally came when I had to pay for the car. George asked me that day, did you buy the car? I said, yes, I bought it. George says, good. 
Your new assignment is Frankenstein Wolf's the Meat Man. Uh, meets the Wolf Man. I'll give you two hours to accept. End quote. A lot of stuff goes down in the commissary at Universal Studios. I love it. Yeah, it blew my mind a little bit when I learned that this whole thing was sort of predicated on a bad joke made at lunch. But the end result here is a highly entertaining film that somehow manages to thread the needle, however illogically, of bringing Larry Talbot, whose story takes place in the present, into the Frankenstein timeline, which takes place much earlier. Now, maybe <laughs> it's the visual style that makes it all work for me, with both the, the Wolfman and the earlier Frankenstein films employing the same sort of high-contrast expressionist cinematography that we see here, combined with the familiar spooky backdrops of cemeteries, castles, and vaguely European villages. Maybe it's Lon Chaney giving what might be his best ever performance as Larry Talbot. Whatever it is, I gotta say, despite some issues, including numerous continuity errors, some incredible leaps of logic, this thing really works for me. What did you think, Mike? Did you seen this one before? I have a feeling you did. Yeah, I had seen this only once before, actually, and I didn't enjoy it as much because I wasn't doing this. We weren't going in order. I didn't have, like, the full context uh, not that it's necessary, but for me to to enjoy it on this level as much as I did this time, I was having so much fun with this movie. I, I thought it was great. It's funny that it's not Frankenstein versus the Wolfman in the title. Like, they toned that down. He never does meet Dr. Frankenstein himself. He meets the daughter of the son of Frankenstein, which I thought was terrific. It's a double sequel. It's a sequel to Wolfman. It's a sequel to Ghost of Frankenstein. I love that. I love the whole sort of joke that it started out as and became, you know, sort of a motif in horror, for lack of a better word, or like a genre trope or something where now everybody wants to see monsters meet each other. At least I know I do. I want to see the modern ones fight. Aliens vs. Predator. I don't think we mentioned that one. And at its core, like at the end there, it just reminds me of a great wrestling match, like a main event, like, you know, like uh, <laughs> yes. Andre the Giant versus like Macho Man Savage, like or something like that. Like it feels great. It's a lot of fun. It looks it's beautiful. It is one of the best looking ones we've seen in a while. Continuity wise, and I didn't even consider that Larry woke up in the past. Um, like None of that was registering <laughs> to me. Uh, it didn't matter because I, I love the way that they wove these two worlds together and uh, I just I was not expecting it to be such a great time I thought they would be sort of straining more than they did and it was a lot of fun there's a lot to talk about yeah, I mean, typically when we've encountered movies that had kind of weak scripts, you know, stuff that was just sort of thrown together, pretty much solely with the interest of capitalizing on the popularity of the characters and not so much to make a good movie, right? Like, there have been multiple issues that have kept us from fully enjoying these films. But here, I think the script is the weakest part of this. If you really scrutinize it, it doesn't line up almost at all with The Wolfman or The Ghost of Frankenstein. I mean, certain details were kept from the ghost of Frankenstein, but uh, largely there's no real continuity. So not, you know, not letting continuity get in the way of a good story doesn't seem to be an issue for, for Universal. Everything else here is, is dialed up to 11. Like you said, it looks beautiful. I think the cinematography is great. The direction is pretty awesome. The stunts are good. So the script sort of gets put on the back burner, but I don't think about it, right? Because I'm, I'm excited to see these two characters, these two titans of horror cinema brought together. And in the interest of that, I think that's where it delivers. And that's really where it needs to deliver. So I'm not really concerned about where it doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, I kind of never am at this point in my life, I think. You know? <laughs> Mash it up, do whatever. Yeah, sure, continuity. All right, this is like Earth 2 instead, right? Like, uh, yeah. I don't care. We're in a different timeline. Doesn't matter. Uh, all that I care about is the movie. This one is very sort of true to itself. There's great setups and payoffs and references and callbacks, and it's just a whole lot of fun. And I actually kind of think the script is like pretty good like i mean it's hard to tell the difference because it just it seems like such for lack of a better term like such sort of like a hack kind of thing i feel like shield mac is treating this seriously but no one's expecting this to be anything right like it's a quick Mm -hmm. cash grab but it actually came out as something in my mind i was expecting the story to be way different the way i remembered it and i think that there's very logical steps in the in the progression of the plot and story even if certain details are contradictive or something of something that we already yeah. knew it doesn't matter to me that frankenstein's castle is still standing and for no reason there's a giant dam next to it all of a sudden like <laughs> it's all good to me yeah, I mean, Kurt Siodmak was given a difficult task to begin with. He had to marry these two timelines that don't line up at all. And so he had to do it in a way that made sense for the most part. Uh, he had to sort of rewrite werewolf mythology. Uh, suddenly, Larry Talbot is immortal. You know, I don't think anybody ever intended for the wolfman to come back to life. But, you know, here he is. There's a new poem. It's very similar to the previous one, but they, they include a line about instead of when the autumn moon is bright, the line changes to when the moon is full and bright so now we've got immortal werewolves and uh, suddenly the full moon is relevant to his transformation so that changes you know then you got all this like sort of germanic old world frankenstein folklore you know that sort of stuff going on that doesn't really mesh with the modern day stuff that's in the werewolf story you're also mixing science fiction with werewolf mythology there's a lot of elements in here and like i said if we were to sit here and scrutinize a lot of it i don't think much of it would hold up however However, the goal of this movie was to bring these two characters together for a fun monster mashup. And I think it delivers in all the ways that fans of these characters would expect it to. Yeah, and I, and I actually felt that the magic and mysticism of the werewolf and the science fiction of Frankenstein's movies, like, I, I kind of like the idea of merging that tech with magic, sort of, can we find some kind of scientific solution to this curse? I really appreciated the way the characters were sort of laced throughout, and, you know, it is kind of funny how the movie is like a journey back in time in a lot of ways, like, they start out in Larry's modern city, and they journey to, like, the mountain town of Frankenstein. So there's kind of like an interesting juxtaposition of modern time now to when these movies were first made. Like so much has changed since Frankenstein won. So that's kind of nice. Like if you could pull little details like that out of out of your viewing as well. But yeah, I, I mean, for a movie that is purely concerned with just getting these two creatures to fight at some point, like I was just still surprised along the way how much fun the ride was. Yeah, it really helps that so many other elements other than that script are are working so well. Well, you know what else it kind of reminds me of? And I mean, I kind of bring this up almost every episode, but nowadays in the MCU, everybody's crossing over. But early on, it was sort of a rarity. And a lot of the material relies just on the sort of value of seeing two of these personalities interact with each other. And it almost is secondary as to what the actual plot or mission or whatever is. Like, we just want to see 
see them not get along and then have to get along or fight each other and that kind of thing, you know? So so this is sort of riding on a lot of that as well. And that, that could have been sort of a new thing at the time. Like this feels like in the sense of King Kong was sort of a blockbuster. Like they were, you know, like they're going for this big spectacle. Whereas in the past, it just seemed like more like, I don't want to say art, but like they were taking shit very seriously to begin with. And now they have to like resort to other measures and other kinds of things. So this all feels like a great big publicity stunt. That's a good point. Um, I hadn't really thought about how a lot of modern like MCU movies, as you said, sort of depend on the appeal of bringing two characters or three characters or however many together just in watching them interact with each other. And then the villains in those movies tend to uh, suffer as a result because we're more interested in, in watching the heroes interact. And so we get weak villains. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that has a large part or, or has a lot to do with why this movie is so much fun. So let's actually, let's get into it. We've got the original Wolfman director, George Wagner, back on this production. This time he's the producer. And we've got Irish-American director Roy William Neal directing. Now, I didn't know anything about Roy William Neal. I did a little bit of research on him. He was a pretty prolific director. He began his career in 1917. He was making mostly low-budget B-movies. What's noteworthy about him is that his style, which utilized meticulous lighting and layered shadows, would later become like a serious hallmark for film noir. So he was kind of doing film noir before film noir was a thing. He's probably most well known for directing the last 11 of the 14 Sherlock Holmes movies Basil Rathbone starred in for Universal. Do you say the last 11 or do you say all but the first four? <laughs> yeah, he did the bulk of that franchise and everything after, I guess, the third Sherlock Holmes movie. Could you imagine in modern days, imagine hiring Ryan Johnson to direct 11 movies in a franchise? He was also originally attached to direct The Lady Vanishes, but due to production delays, Alfred Hitchcock was hired instead. So yeah, not a bad director to pick for a movie like this. Maybe unusual in that like his repertoire was more like thrillers, detective stuff, and whatnot. But I think he does a great job bringing his visual style to the Universal Monsters. He finds that happy medium between Wolfman style and Frankenstein style, right? Whatever it is he was doing really kind of naturally lends itself to both of those characters. Yeah, this movie is gorgeous. Not just like the lighting, but the movement of the camera is like excellent there's a lot of that stuff and like you mentioned earlier and we're going to talk about it a lot more but Lon Chaney Jr. is amazing in this movie and everybody yeah. is so good in this and it's so like everybody who's like kind of not a monster it feels like he sort of really directed those people like the guys at the tavern I can't wait to talk about those guys all the extra characters are terrific and all the actors are terrific too so i feel like that's a testament as well to be like there's great support for this schlock right <laughs> yes yeah he's really elevating the material to a higher level i mean it's still a monster movie you know but at the end of the day adults at the time were not taking this seriously but he's taking the material seriously and i and it really shows and i, and I think like you hinted at or suggested that's a great deal why this movie is, is so Good. Speaking about his visual style, George Robinson is the cinematographer here. He also shot Son of Frankenstein and The Mummy's Tomb. You know, those were both beautifully shot films. Whatever other issues we had with them, I don't believe cinematography was was an issue there. Kurt Siodmak, I mentioned, wrote the screenplay here. Let's get into the cast. Lon Chaney Jr., of course, is Larry Talbot. Now, a lot of this stuff is sort of woven into the, the Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, like, sort of lore. I think fans of, of these movies will already know a lot of this information, but we're going to go through it real quick. The original plan for this movie was to have Lon Chaney play both monsters. 
oh, that's what I wanted him to do last movie. Yeah. So I was watching a Karloff documentary last week, Dan, and he actually did play two guys in one movie. They were show. I can't remember the name of the movie. I'll have to find it and send it to you. But there was some split screen action back then. So it made me think of that idea. And that's interesting how it's popping up again here. Yeah, I mean, both monsters had stunt actors. So I don't think it would have been too difficult to shoot the fights this way. However, the, the idea was eventually scrapped because George Wagner realized the inherent challenges involved with the makeup because both makeups were very intricate, um, as well as the physical toll it would take on Chaney. Chaney was already a very physical actor doing a lot of stuff with the Wolfman, but to take on the Wolfman and the Frankenstein monster might have been too much even for him. With all that in mind, the whole idea of, of Chaney playing both characters was scrapped, and Bela Lugosi, Dracula, was hired as the Frankenstein monster. Igor. Yeah, yeah, and Igor, of course. I think that had a lot to do with his casting here. In the Ghost of Frankenstein with Igor's brain being transplanted into the Frankenstein monster, you know, and without Lon Chaney to play the Frankenstein monster as he had done in the Ghost of Frankenstein, like it was a natural choice to have Bella play the monster here. I feel like that is some kind of like unintended stroke of genius. Like I couldn't get that out of my head to be like, oh my gosh, in the last movie, like Bella's brain was put in the creature and now he's got his face. Like he is the creature. Way back he was supposed to be the creature or like, it's just like this nice sort of thing to see Bella. I think he looks great in the makeup. So it's, it's very nice that he finally gets to wear it and be the creature. Yes. Now, as you sort of mentioned, and I think we talked about this in our original Frankenstein episode, but Bella was supposed to play the monster before he was replaced with Boris Karloff. Of course, the details are very fuzzy on that. Some would say that Bella turned down the part. Some say it wasn't his choice at all and that James Whale wanted Karloff specifically from the very beginning. But whatever the case may be, the fact of the matter is that Bella was in the running to play the Frankenstein monster. And because he didn't, Bella's career kind of started its decline just as Karloff's was taking off. And by 1942, Bella was like he was over on Poverty Row at Monogram Pictures working on films like Bowery at Midnight and The Ape Man. And at 60 years old, he was in no position to turn down Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. So that's where he is in his career by this point. It's unfortunate that like he didn't get to play the Frankenstein monster earlier because he doesn't really get a whole lot to do, unfortunately. But like you said, I agree with you that it is nice to finally see him in the makeup. We were just talking about this in keeping with the ghost of Frankenstein, where Igor's brain was transplanted into the Frankenstein monster. The original script for Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman featured a nearly blind monster that could still speak and was still hellbent on achieving world domination. In fact, they shot three scenes where the monster speaks. Unfortunately, when the finished film was screened for the production staff, these scenes resulted in fits of uncontrollable laughter. And unwilling to make a joke of their most valuable monster, the powers that be had these scenes removed, but they never included any explanation for the monster being blind. So as a result, Bella's monster spends most of the movie with his arms inexplicably stretched out in front of him as he sort of shambles around. That's why his performance as the monster is the way it is. Wasn't he blind at the end of the last movie not that we're keeping score or yes. anything but yes that's that's why i assumed he kind of acted sort of more like that along the way yeah it didn't really occur to me as some kind of um edit or something else like that and this is also giving us what i as a kid originally used to imitate frankenstein like when i was a little boy is i had my arms outstretched like that walking in front of me and it's kind of fun to know that he's doing that 
because he's blind. There's some kind of dread like that where like he can get you before he's supposed to because his arms are stretched out or something, you know? I do think this movie benefits from having watched Ghost of Frankenstein recently because knowing that the monster went blind after the uh, brain transplant, we can connect those dots ourselves. But at the time, I I doubt that fans were watching these obsessively, right? There was no home entertainment, right? You you didn't have TV. So if you wanted to see Frankenstein, you had to go to the movies to see it. And so it's possible that a lot of people didn't remember that the monster was blind or just didn't take the the, the movie as seriously as all that. So yeah, it ended up being kind of a joke at the time. But as you said, like it is kind of cool that despite Boris Karloff's success in that role, it's Bella's performance that most people imitate. Whenever we act out Frankenstein, the arms go out and it's even like it's shown up in popular culture as well. I think of Brendan Fraser at the end of Gods and Monsters, you know, he's doing Bella's Frankenstein monster. Herman Munster's kind of thing is predicated on Bella's version of the monster. So, you know, despite how much of a joke it was in 1943, I do love that the sort of go-to Frankenstein monster impression is Bella's version, not Karloff's. It unfortunately doesn't make Bella's career any better, right? Like he still went the, the way it went, but I still really want him to play Dr. Frankenstein like that. I mean, I feel like he's almost born to play that in a, in a sense, but I still find every iteration of the monster interesting in their own way. Like this serves this story very well, especially when we talk about the way he comes into the story. It kind of makes sense to me that like this creature has sort of been shut off and turned on so many times at this point, And they even talk about how he's like at low power. So, that he's kind of malfunctioning or like not really the creature we remember i like that idea too like that's something that i was sort of formulating in my brain while i was watching this as well i was like well what if no one has seen any of the other movies like how can they kind of explain his actions and and his motivations which he doesn't seem to have much of and and everything like that if you don't know his history so i think by going very basic with it was a smart move you know in the end in the end there's there's so many elements to this movie and a lot of time spent with wolfman that uh, by the time monster shows up i i think he's very serviceable for what what he needs to do when he's around yeah and i, and I read somewhere like I'm, I'm wondering how this didn't get caught earlier that Bella's line readings just didn't work. And I, and I read somewhere that uh, Edward Burns, who was Roy William Neal's go-to sound man, worked with him on a number of projects. He attributed some of the failure to recognize the comedic potential of these scenes to just a general lack of a sense of humor from Roy William Neal. He was not a comedy director. He did a lot of serious material and comedy just wasn't his, his strong suit. So it just never occurred to him that the material was funny to begin with. Yeah, this is not a funny movie. No. We will get to the guy who always steals the show. We'll, we'll talk about him when we get to him. But that's pretty much, the, that's the levity. There's, there's not a lot of comedy and things like that. It's very driven home about Larry's state of mind. There's a lot of talk about mental illness. And there's a, so I think he's a psychiatrist in this. I mean, he ends up being some kind of brain surgeon but like <laughs> you know the doctor but yes. yeah yeah i like I, i'm just digging all the other stuff they're trying to explore as well 
Okay, so moving on, we've got Ilana Massey as Baroness Elsa Frankenstein. She's replacing Evelyn Ankers, who played Elsa Frankenstein in The Ghost of Frankenstein. I'm almost positive the decision to replace Evelyn Ankers is because Evelyn Ankers was also in The Wolfman, and her casting here may have been confusing for the audience. This is sort of an issue, and, and like as we go down the list, there's a lot of familiar names, and I think it speaks more to Universal's small pool of actors. They didn't have a, a huge stable of actors for this sort of a movie, so that's why we keep seeing a lot of the same actors over and over. A lot of us, he had just shown up in Invisible Agent, and so now here she is playing Elsa Frankenstein, and I think she does a pretty good job with the material. I actually really, I mean, I like her anyway. I think we, we both really liked her in Invisible Agent, so it was, it was nice seeing her here playing a Germanic character so her accent works really well yeah the daughter of the son of frankenstein the granddaughter of frankenstein i love it yeah and i love this actress i thought you're right we loved her in, in invisible agent it's good to see her here again i don't mind i really don't mind recasting and i guess we now live in a day and age if you've seen the latest episodes of boba fett that recasting doesn't seem like it's ever going to be a problem moving forward if you've got enough money uh like the just things they could do with digital power yeah i i think she's great a great addition here i'm like of two minds about like the whole idea of their talent pool you know this is the problem with being under contract in places is like how great mm-hmm. would it have been if betty davis was in one of these movies or something like that but no she's probably under contract at a different studio or maybe not but you get my drift like other actors would have been great to fight the wolfman or even be the wolfman as much as i love lon chaney but i like seeing her here i thought it was great i think she fits right in and i love her character you know she's the only one that has any sense in this freaking universe (laughs) like she's the only one that's just like stop all this madness but yeah good stuff yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen it quite as insulated as I have here with these Universal monster movies, but I definitely do really enjoy when I see either pairs of actors or a small group of actors who just tend to work together a lot. You know, in, in this time, like in the old studio system, you know, I think of Humphrey Bogart, Sidney Greenstreet, and Peter Lorre. You know, they, they made a handful of movies together and they played all different characters. And the joy for me is getting to watch these actors who I like act together, you know, from movie to movie. And so part of the fun for me watching these is seeing these actors keep showing up over and over and over again, playing different characters, different roles, um, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Scorsese directed them all or something, right? Like, it's like De Niro keeps showing up and De Niro's here again. In a way, you know, but of course the reality here for Universal, I think, was just to, to keep the, the price down on the movie, keep the budget low. You know, so so I, I, I love that I'm getting to know these actors. Like, before we did this podcast, I couldn't tell you who Patrick Knowles is. You know, he's the next guy in our cast. He's Dr. Mannering. You know, I don't know who Patrick Knowles is before this, but now I know that he was in The Wolfman as uh, Frank Andrews. You know, he's in that movie. Now I'm seeing him here as what will be this movie's Dr. Frankenstein. Dr. Frank, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, th- I think that's an intentional choice, that he plays Dr. Frank Mannering. They don't even say his first name until, like, more than halfway through the movie. I was like, wait a minute, his name's Frank? That's awesome. 
Lionel Atwill, another guy, like he's back for his third Frankenstein film. We've seen him, I think, in more than just Frankenstein films, but this is his third Frankenstein. This time he's playing the mayor. Great to see him back. Yes. Every time I see him pop up in these movies, I get excited, even though like he... He's playing some of the the more fun characters in the Frankenstein's, I think. Well, he was Frankenstein in the last one, right? In Son. He played yes. the actual Dr. Frankenstein. So that's great here how he's got like a doppelganger in town and he had and he was the um, I don't know what was it? he was like sort of the commissioner or the sheriff in the in the He's Krogue, yeah. Krogue, yeah. And every time he shows up, completely different character. Playing it so different and so it was so nice to kind of see him play a happy guy for once this character is like he's the mayor but like it's at the festival and and he just wants everybody to be happy and just forget about their problems and stuff whereas in like the past movies like he's sort of been very central to the conflict and the issues and stuff so you know it's cool to see him get to do something lighter this time i guess this is neither here nor there. It doesn't really have to do with the movie so much, but I found some more information on him and I just thought it'd be fun to share. Apparently at this time, he was involved in a sex scandal that nearly ruined his career. Oh no. Just a few days into production, he was sentenced to five years probation for perjury. I have to believe that part of him decided to do a third Frankenstein movie because it needed the money. But at the same time, he's incredible. Like, he's so much fun to see here. So whatever the reason, uh, I'm glad he's here. We've got Maria Ospenskaya, of course, as Maliva. I think this is the last time we see her. I could be wrong about that, but um, I'm pretty sure this is it. Dennis Hoey as Inspector Owen. Hoey was probably most well-known to audiences as Inspector Lestrade in six of Universal's Sherlock Holmes films. This was his first Universal monster movie, but we will be seeing him again also as an inspector in 1946's She-Wolf of London. To say he was typecast is sort of an understatement. Most of his career is made up of roles that were like inspectors, detectives, that sort of thing. That makes perfect sense to me, you know, like uh, now that you said he was in those Sherlock movies as well with the director like probably playing the exact same character with a different name right i love him though i buy him i like him a lot yeah no he, he works here for sure although i have some questions about why he isn't used a little bit more i think dr mannering takes on a few too many roles here and uh, some of them could have been inspector owen but you know we'll get to that when we get to that Rex Evans is a character actor who plays our innkeeper, Vazek. He was an experienced stage actor in Great Britain. He spent a lot of time in cabarets and music halls, so kind of old school guy. He eventually came to the U.S. in the 30s to perform on Broadway, and then eventually just made a career playing a lot of butlers and distinguished businessmen, that sort of thing. And I did find that we've seen him before, although he was uncredited. He was uh, one of the constables in The Invisible Man Returns. Nice. He sort of gets to mimic a famous scene from the original Frankenstein in this movie. Yes, and I love I love his mustache. Yeah, that's a that's a um, that's a Poirot mustache right there. I know, Dan. I wrote that down. That must have <laughs> been why I mentioned him earlier, Agatha Christie stuff earlier. That's so funny. Yes. Finally, the patron saint of the monsters that made us, Dwight Fry, appears again in his final Universal film. Oh, I love it. I had no idea he was going to be in it, and when he showed up, I was like, there he is. And he's yep. great. And he's what I'm talking about when I was mentioning like the comic relief. Like it's all basically him. It's not even his material. It's just his delivery. Or maybe it's just me because I'm excited to see him. I feel like that's all the levity we're going to get, folks. So yeah, I was a little bit surprised he wasn't one of the grave robbers at the beginning of the movie because they usually will cast him in these sort of like gross vagrant roles. Yeah, that'd have been a good callback too. 
It would have been, yeah, of course. Now, I should, I should back up and say that this was his final credited Universal film. He did appear in two films after this, uh, but this was the last time he actually had a credited role. This time he's playing uh, the villager Rudy. He has a name, which is good. So we sort of touched on this in our Frankenstein episode, I'm sure, the original Frankenstein episode. But at this time in his life, he was acting by day, and by night he was a tool designer for uh, an L.A. aircraft plant. And in November 1943, at 44 years old, he died of a heart attack while on a Hollywood bus. That was just a few days before he was scheduled to film the biopic Wilson, about Woodrow Wilson. So we won't be seeing him again, unfortunately. It makes me very sad that this is the end of Dwight Fry, but um, I did savor, I think, every second he was on screen. It also uh, just, wow, it drives home how like acting was kind of just another job. You know, he had like two jobs. Oh yeah, during the day, I, I gotta go make this movie, and at night, I gotta go go to the plant. Uh, yep. You know, I thought he was the only one in that situation and stuff, but wow. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Someone should do a movie about his life because gone too soon and left a huge impression for me. So Definitely. I am hoping that when we eventually do get our Renfield movie, when Nicholas Holt portrays Renfield in the movie that's coming, that he draws from Dwight Fry in some way. I think that it would be a shame not to. I know that Tom Waits played Renfield in, in Francis Coppola's movie, so I'm sure some of that will work its way in, but I would love to see like some legit Dwight Fry influence on this upcoming Renfield. That's it for the cast, really. I couldn't find a whole lot of behind-the-scenes drama to talk about, unfortunately, but I did find a couple things about like the script and the movie that this could have been. There were, unsurprisingly, some very small changes made to Kurt Siodmak's script during production. For instance, when the grave robbers discover Larry's body, he is in a state of perfect preservation, except they notice his fingernails had grown very long. At the hospital, when the doctor and the inspector are examining Larry's clothes for clues, his clothes are rotten and moldy and fall apart at the slightest touch. Originally, Maliva was unsympathetic to Larry, basically telling him to go away and leave her alone. As the Wolfman is being pursued by the angry mob, he hurls rocks down at them. And in the finale, it was the Wolfman who first broke free and terrorized Dr. Mannering and Elsa with the Frankenstein monster coming to their rescue. And the final image of the movie would have been Frankenstein's diary floating in the water, open to a page saying, quote, And when I succeed in creating life, I shall be as great as God, end quote. The only one I'm missing is that final shot. That would have been nice. The diary, you know, because then it's like, oh, the diary's loose. Someone can pick that up. Lastly, I want to talk about the fight. I know you like stunts. Before we get into the movie itself, let's talk about the final, like, fight sequence. It's a pretty impressive fight sequence, I think. Pretty surprised at, like, how brutal it seemed. And so I found uh, a quote from stuntman Gil Perkins. He doubled Lugosi as the monster. He said, quote, Roy William Neal just told Eddie Parker, Cheney's double as the Wolfman, and myself to work out a fight and let him see it. We worked out the thing, then we just walked through it for Neal, went through the motions and said... This is what we'll do here. This is what we'll do there. He told us what he wanted, where he wanted us to start, and where he wanted us to finish, and what kind of fight he wanted it to be. Apart from that, he left us pretty well alone. Cool. So sort of like uh, improved it on the day, just worked it out. Yeah, I, I imagine it was a lot like, I mean, you you compare the fight to sort of, or at least the promotion of it to like professional wrestling. And I oh, think yeah. in, in practice on the set, it was very much like that. I've seen stage fighting choreographed, you know, like I, my time in the theater, I've seen how that kind of works out. There's a lot of similarities between stage fighting and pro wrestling. And so you have these two experienced stuntmen 
organizing, you know, a fight, I think it's very, very similar. I love that the director, Roy Neal, just kind of left them to handle it because he let them do what they would do best, right? Instead of interfering, he gave them the reins to orchestrate this fight how they thought it would best look. And I think it works out really well. That's the way to do it. Nowadays, you would have an entire unit that just does the fight stunt sequencing and all that kind of thing and like generally i mean the director's involved of course he has to give his okay but like yeah blockbuster movies it's just no time to direct everything so that's very that's very clever this is way before like there was a second unit mm-hmm. right so right right the, the, yeah the, the director was directing everything yeah so the trust of just be like do whatever you can and work it out and show me and i i love it because they're so they're seemingly so mismatched like the monster is so big and Mm -hmm. the wolfman is so kind of wiry and jumps around a lot and it's like hard to catch them and i just really love their fight because of those reasons like they each have different advantages and disadvantages and it's yeah it's not necessarily an even an even match on either side so that was pretty cool All right, let's get into the movie itself. Now, of course, we start with the same uh, Universal logo. Uh, Has not changed yet. Has not changed yet. Yeah, I thought about that. (laughs) Hasn't changed yet. But we get a really cool opening credit sequence that it starts with the sort of the scientific, like the lab. You've got what I imagine is just, you know, dry ice. You've got like Bunsen burner and the flasks and really cool font on the title and the drippy letters fading onto the screen. Just a very, very cool opening credit sequence. Yeah, I mean, you get so much mileage out of dry ice and a smoke machine or anything like that. Like, it is just so cool looking the way it just overflows and keeps going. It's all you got to do for a title sequence. I mean, it looks great. Yes. It makes me wonder why, like, some of these movies just couldn't be bothered. The movie starts in earnest in a cemetery. And it is in the the mausoleum, I guess like the family crypt for the Talbots. Sir John Talbot is there, Larry Talbot, and the whole Talbot clan. Yeah, this graveyard is gorgeous and we get this beautiful opening shot. Well, after the full moon anyway, we get that great camera move as they're creeping through the graveyard. Yeah, and and I love this cemetery. I mean, this is sort of where Frankenstein and the Wolfman come together from a visual point of view. I mean, you know what I mean? Like this cemetery belongs in both. Yeah, good call. It just looks really old school, gothic with the the dark shadows just looks excellent. Yeah, I love that little staircase. And we're going to come back here too, which I love again, is like revisiting sets and locations. So we've got our two grave robbers. We don't really know who they are quite yet, but it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly. They're there to break into the crypt and, you know, steal whatever they can. This is when they come across Larry Talbot's grave. They, I don't think, really understand who Larry Talbot was. Otherwise, I think they would have just gotten the hell out of there. They just heard that he was buried with a lot of money. So they will go for him first, I guess, because he was the freshest. Yeah, it was four years prior. I don't know if the if the script has established that or not, but we will eventually find out it's been four years. But they find him, and he is not just, you know, moldy bones and, and decayed flesh. He is, for the most part, still intact. He's got a little bit of a five o'clock shadow. He's been buried with wolfbane. He's got a scar, I think. They never actually show the scar on his chest, uh, although he shows it to the inspector later on. The only real, like, thing we see 
throughout this whole movie is the scar on his head, which he's going to get uh, in a couple scenes. So Larry is sort of in this state of suspended animation. And as soon as the, the top comes off of the crypt and the, the wolfbane is moved away and the moon conveniently shines in through the window on his face, he is resurrected uh, as a werewolf. I love how quickly that scene ends. Uh, yeah, I just love how we're off and running immediately in this opening yes. sequence, like with these two deaths and everything like that. And I love how like the moonlight revived him. And it's like, man, what bad luck for these grave robbers that <laughs> they had to pick a full moon. But I guess that's when it's brightest at, at night. Best to go out then. I love the lantern, the use of that as the source light. That is gorgeous in this sequence. And that's when I knew I was like, okay, pay attention. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I made a note myself that when the one guy puts the lantern down on the ground so they can get the lid off of the crypt, it gives that harsh low light we attribute to like spooky things. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. To change the lighting in the scene with that lantern is just fantastic. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Sometimes you get great lighting in films that's just not possible in the real world. And like, that's totally cool. That's fine. But like to have that extra step to be like, oh, it, it looks like this because this is all of the light available and so forth and so on. And like, we're going to do it like that was immediately impressive to me. My final note sort of on Larry's condition i don't know how else to really describe it the fact that he seems to be immortal now um i'm getting like heavy hulk vibes off of that you know where it's like <laughs> the other side of him won't let him die right he doesn't own the body entirely and like every time bruce banner like tries to kill himself he'll turn into the hulk to stop him i never thought that would apply to the wolfman but it's cool yeah, it's funny that you say that because the last time you compared a universal monster to the Hulk, it was the Frankenstein monster. That's right. <laughs> and it's crazy. I, I had since I started reading the Hulk from the beginning and his very first assistant was a guy named Igor. So like, <laughs> what was going on? So yeah, the next scene we've got, Larry is found in the middle of a street. He's got a pretty severe head injury and he is taken to a local hospital. And that's where we find out that he is in Cardiff, which is a town in Wales. I like that moment. Like I thought that the cop was gonna eat it, but he finds Larry out on the street. Yeah, looking worse for wear. And then we meet Dr. Mannering and we meet Inspector Owen. They discover that Larry has made a full recovery overnight and they can't believe it. He's sitting up, he's speaking, and I think the dialogue here helps sell his head injury because the makeup it doesn't really quite convey how serious his head injury was supposed to be. But uh, yeah, so he took a pretty severe hit to the head and I think we're left to assume that in his werewolf form he was like bludgeoned by somebody a potential victim maybe and then left in the street yeah we don't know exactly the doctor says he has a skull fracture they said that there right. was an operation yeah they're extremely shocked that he's talking let alone awake but i, I just want to say we didn't really touch too deep on patrick Knowles going through the cast but him you know we got the new dr frank mannering um, doesn't quite roll off the tongue like Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, and Inspector Owen. These, for the most part, are our two new characters for the rest of the movie. And yes. I like them, you know? Like, they're this weird buddy cop thing where one's super strict and the other one is just kind of, I don't know, what would you say? He's just... Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 a little bit good good cop bad cop. It's a little like that, but I feel like yeah, Doctor Frank is kind of he's just really into science and wants to get to the bottom of the truth, and so does the inspector because but for a different reason, you know they they have yes. different motives, and I like that. Like they're both interested in Larry, but for different reasons. One wants to figure out if he's involved in the crime, and the other one wants to figure out like is he a wolf man. So that's that's cool. I like these guys. Yes. Larry, I mean, this is the same song he's going to be playing for as long as we see him for the rest of our time through these movies, is that he is trying to convince anybody who will listen that he is a werewolf, he will turn into a vicious monster at the full moon, and that he must be killed to save everyone's lives and so on and so forth. So so yeah, that'll be, that'll be Larry through the end of the Universal Monsters at this point. I'm actually quite surprised that Larry's going to tell everybody, like, how suicidal he is, you know? He's like, oh, I'm yep. no good alive. Someone just kill me already. Why do I have to live? <laughs> you know, but to say that, you know, in the next movie, he's going to be right back to this. I, I'm not really looking too forward to that, I guess. I feel like he, he does everything with that in this movie. So it's a little unfortunate that, that we're going to find out the Wolfman kind of gets, like, stuck in a zone, I guess. Yeah. So within that scene, he claims to be Lawrence Talbot. And so Inspector Owen calls the police station from the Talbot's hometown, just tries to follow up on that lead. And the the police officer there confirms that there was a family of Talbots who lived there, but Lawrence Talbot died four years ago uh, when his father bludgeoned him to death. And and so he couldn't be Lawrence Talbot. I like a lot of a lot of little details in this scene. Like one the inspector's like working on his pipe while the other one's like inflating his bike tire. <laughs> so quaint. Such a cool little little detail. The other thing where he's like, well, if you have Larry Talbot, I hope he's your prisoner. And then this whole idea of like, oh, maybe he's an imposter. Like that's really cool. This movie is just rolling along. I like it. I like like all these little things being introduced every scene like that. Like, oh, we're going to we're going to work with this imposter thing for a few scenes. Yeah, what's great about this movie just from the get-go is that the audiences had been introduced to the Frankenstein monster multiple times and they knew who the Wolfman was. So you don't have to go through the whole effort of reestablishing these characters. All they had to do was figure out what needed to change or be updated in order to make this story work. And so, yeah, I love these little nuances that that change the Wolfman story a little bit. And here we've got like mistaken identity, possibly. We've got sort of noir characteristics now that I think about it, you know? Yeah, and it's cool because Larry is actually gonna gonna use the uh imposter angle later in the movie yes. like it's pretty smart like that like this is part of that setup and so while larry is hospitalized he is subjected to another full moon and this is where we get what i believe is the first man to wolf transformation sequence because we didn't get one in the last one at the end of the Wolfman, all we get is at the like the final moments of the movie we get that transition of him from wolf to man right when after he's been killed and we get some feet earlier in the movie right but here we get like the first time we've ever seen him transition from a man into a wolf and i mean i have to assume that, that like john fulton the effects guy and jack pierce were kind of like used to this by now right they knew they had it down to a science and they could do it pretty effortlessly. I'm sure it still took quite a bit of time to apply all that makeup and get those the, get those shots. They didn't have to learn how to do it at this point. So we get a really good transition sequence here. Oh man, it is so it is so good. It is shockingly good. I'm like, wow, there's way more moments in this transformation that I recalled. And 
this will be like the benchmark for like tw- at least 20 years they'll be doing you know dissolves like this in monster <laughs> movies and, and things so yeah very iconic really great i really really enjoyed seeing this yeah really sort of just like got me in the moment i'm thinking of hammer's curse of the werewolf with oliver reed and i don't recall the transformation in that being anything particularly groundbreaking it's been some time since i've watched it so i'd have to revisit that but i'm pretty sure that beyond this the next really truly mind-blowing werewolf transformation would be american werewolf in london that was rick baker correct and either that or the howling but that is around the, like the 80s i remember the thriller music video as well but it was uh that was after american werewolf because john landis was hired for that yeah we're talking like maybe like 40 years before the next truly jaw-dropping werewolf transformation so it looks really good here and then we get like such a oh man i wish i wish this sequence lasted longer because it's so much fun you know we got a wolf man on the loose in a city this this is like the kind of feeling i get i don't know three spider-man movies deep and you just get to see him like run across rooftops for no reason in a sequence it's like oh look he's just doing wolfman shit on the loose like he's just out and about like climbing stuff hopping around like howling it's so fun now this might not be the best reference but it kind of reminded me of the sequence in van helsing when van helsing is pursuing mr hyde through france oh i actually really like that sequence we'll get to that movie eventually i'm sure but but that sequence is really fun you know and i kind of got a little bit of that here like it's kind of what i wanted from it it's really not appropriate for this particular movie but like to imagine a wolfman like jumping from rooftops and racing through dark alleyways like i would love to see something like that so we get a little bit of that here and really the scene just serves to up the body count a little bit the wolfman attacks uh, a patrolling policeman and then drags him off into the alley with a fantastic shadow like that shot of him just dragging him out of the frame and then you see the shadow along the wall wonderful again yeah i mean i don't think we're going to be able to like praise the look of this one (laughs) any more than we are but like again like that's just such a great like that's very noir i feel like Mm -hmm. just you know ending on the silhouettes of of stuff gone bad and fading out of that and and everything but it just applies so well to the story to the characters and involved like everything to me is so on point tonight yeah this one manages to feel more violent to me than the wolfman did but it doesn't show more violence really like I mean, it was 1943. They could only do so much. But the suggestion of violence, I think, is more effective here. There's even a moment, I don't want to get too far ahead, but Larry's like, how'd you find me? He's like, I I basically just followed the trail of bodies. And you're like, holy shit. (laughs) Right. So the next morning, Larry wakes up in his hospital room and he is back in his hospital clothes because, like, for some reason, he had changed clothes to, to go run around as a werewolf. Well, he did that in the first one. He put on a jean jacket. Yes. Uh, yeah, he sure did. So he's back in his hospital gown and insisting that, you know, he escaped and killed the cop that everyone's talking about. And Dr. Mannering insists there's no way he could have escaped. Long story short, nobody still wants to take Larry seriously, his whole werewolf story. I'd love the idea of, like, a confessor. I don't love the idea that he wants to, like, die, but I kind of like the idea of, like, I, confessing and no one believing you is, like, you, you feel like you're supposed to get such a relief from people learning what you've done or, you know, telling someone something horrible you did. But then when no one believes you, are like, now it's even worse. Like, yeah. how do I get you to believe me? And they're like, well, we'll just throw you in a straitjacket for now and figure it out later. 
that idea has been used again in, in future werewolf movies. I mean, I think of that scene at the end of American Werewolf in London, to, to bring that up again. There's that great scene where David is just trying to get arrested, so they'll throw him in jail, and he just starts calling the cop an asshole, and like, Shakespeare was full of shit, you know, that whole scene. <laughs> it's maybe the most realistic thing about werewolf movies is that who would believe that? You know, it's very difficult to get yourself committed, get yourself thrown in jail. I love that he's just out of the gate ready to uh, to confess, but nobody will believe that. This isn't the town that, you know, the town that Frankenstein built. Like, if <laughs> I feel like as soon as Larry goes there, if he told somebody he was a wolfman, they'd believe him. Like when we get That's there. true. <laughs> he doesn't do that. No, I know. Yeah, he doesn't. He's just being, he's all coy at that point because he's looking for the cure. So they straightjacket Larry and treat him like he's just sort of insane. So this is the scene where we get Dr. Mannering explaining to Inspector Owen that he believes that Larry is a lycanthrope. And I think that's the first time we've heard that term used. Uh, Or no, we saw that used in Werewolf of London, the term lycanthrope. I think we read it on screen, right? Yeah, I think it's featured in in one of the books. But here, lycanthrope means a man who thinks he is a werewolf, which is slightly different. Overcome with lunacy. I kind of like it. I'm liking it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because Dr. Frank at this point isn't entirely convinced. Obviously, he's not convinced. He's, He's like starting his inquisition into all this kind of stuff. And so he's like, he's not a believer at this point. Later, he's going to want to revise that definition as, oh, no, it's a man who is a werewolf. Like, I'm kind of cool with uh, definitions switching and changing. I believe that a medical book in 1943 would have said the same thing. You know, I I don't know that a a science book would have really humored real lycanthropy, right? Like, as far as doctors are concerned. Yeah, unless it's Dr. Van Helsing's, right. Right, right. And so Mannering and Owen head out to the Talbot crypt just to rule out that, you know, the real Larry Talbot is buried there. When they get there, they discover the tomb has been like opened. There is a dead body on the ground that like the cause of death was a um, set like the, the jugular had been severed, right? Similar to the cop that had been found dead the night prior. And so now I think they're starting to realize that there's something to Larry's story. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's the Talbot crypt. It was broken from the inside out, so something escaped from it. There's two dead bodies. I don't know what happened to who put out the fire, the fire that was caused by the lantern. And then we get the name of one of the dudes. His name is Freddy Jolly, which I just think is one of the weirdest, (laughs) most terrific names. This would have been a good point for some old footage, Dan. This is what I'm talking about. The last movie we watched should have done is wait until like the middle, have a character come up and be like, oh, you didn't watch the last two movies? Movies? Like, let me give you the summary and synopsis. But I love that for as much as this movie should have probably used old footage, that it didn't do it. This is a movie with two established characters with history, their own history, I should say, and yet we get zero flashback footage. Well, how can you when the actors in this movie were playing different characters in those other movies? So, like, you're going to flash back to, like, Ghost of Frankenstein and see, you know, Lionel Atwell as a different character than he is in this movie and the uh, Bear. Baroness Elsa is a different actor. Like, I don't think they could have used old footage from the movies if they had wanted to. You know, because even the original Wolfman had a different woman in it and stuff. So it's like, what? I guess what I'm trying to say is that, like, I love that this movie just didn't 
feel the need to use it, even though they had every reason to. The past couple movies made use of all that old footage because they just didn't have enough material. But here, where they probably should have, they, they just chose not to. And I love I love the decision not to lean on the old footage. So, like, the Crypt Keeper, I guess, for lack of a better term, sort of justifies the story that Inspector Owen had heard earlier, which is that Larry Talbot was bludgeoned to death by his father. And when they ask where his father is, well, John Talbot is buried over here. He died shortly after he, he murdered his son because of grief. So now the pieces are coming together. It's sad to learn that his dad passed away, you know, shortly after. But it would have been nice. We got Claude Rains back in this movie. Oh my god, could you imagine Claude Rains in this movie? Oh my god, would have been awesome. They grabbed the local officer to come back to Queen's Hospital to identify Larry. Dr. Mannering calls the hospital to, like, let them know they're coming, and that's when he finds out that Larry has escaped. So Larry is now on the lam. He is a fugitive werewolf trying to seek a solution to his problem. Like like we've talked about, he just wants to die. He wants permanent death. So his first move is to revisit the, the gypsy woman, Maliva. And I love this sequence because this is like pure Wolfman right here. And we even get to see Moose. The dog that is in the gypsy camp is Lon Chaney Jr.'s dog, Moose. That was nice. Dude, this gypsy camp looks awesome. What this sequence really pointed out for me is like the frame is going to be filled almost every sequence at some point with interesting information in the foreground, yeah. midground, and background. It really uses the entire frame a lot of ways. And so when he's like talking inside of the tent to Maliva, you can see outside of the tent, everybody in the company sort of listening in and uh -huh. all that kind of stuff. And that, and that sort of thing sort of happens from time to time in the movie where there's just stuff in the background and oh, it's so good. It's so nice. Yeah, I, I, I love this return to the gypsy camp. I just love Maria Uspenskaya. Her performance is always so good. We get major information dropped in this scene too, right? Major, I don't know if we'd call it retcon because it just was information we didn't hear the last movie. Or did we know that Bella was her son? I don't remember if the Wolfman explicitly states that he was her son. We know that they were part of the same camp and I'm pretty sure we knew they were related. But I don't remember their relationship being fleshed out to that degree. I don't think it was. I think this is new because I remember us talking about, like, why is she protecting him? Like, yeah. why doesn't she just take care of him? And now we find out why they put that in there for that reason. It's like, well, you know, you you protected Bella. You kept Bella alive. And like, why would you do that? And it's like, well, if he wasn't my kid, I wouldn't have. But she does eventually decide to help him. And she is the link between the Wolfman and Frankenstein, which I think is super cool. That blows my mind. Obviously, this troop like rolled through that town or all those towns, or they're they're rolling through every Universal monster movie town. <laughs> it's just so cool that she's kind of the linchpin. Because I almost thought that at some point they would have called Doctor Van Helsing and been like, "We got this guy who thinks he's a werewolf. Like, you want to come check him out?" And then he takes him to Doctor Frankenstein or something like that. But I like this more, you know. And we don't need to mm -hmm. bring in stuff from Dracula yet. Let's just. We're keeping it within these two camps. Yeah, I, this almost made me want Larry and Maliva to like always be on the move together everywhere they go. Like say they go to Transylvania and they encounter Dracula or whatever. And I kind of always wanted them to be a traveling pair. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, was not to be. But this this whole like traveling sort of like montage really 
I just I just enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It starts as like a carriage ride montage. But I also love the idea of the two of them kind of going on a quest or something. Like, come, we will go visit Dr. Frankenstein's castle. Mm-hmm. And it like, takes them a long time and it's harrowing. And I imagine they had a very long and treacherous journey. And yeah, it's it, it makes them earn it and he's showing some will to live here too so i like that as well well i mean he's he's put all of his hope in her and and she says i have a solution for you so yeah he can absolutely rest a little easier knowing that like salvation is coming but in the next scene when they do get to the town of viseria uh and they start asking about frankenstein all hope seems to dwindle the people of the town suddenly turn on on him as he starts asking these questions yeah, we don't say that name. <laughs> right, and, 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 and this is one of those inconsistencies that I was sort of referring to at the top of the show. The events of Ghost of Frankenstein, they're not nearly as traumatic as the things that happened in the original town of Frankenstein. They all showed up at the train station to wish him good luck, remember? They're like, but they, they were kind of like, never come back. Right. But, you know, thanks for visiting. But here in Viseria, they mentioned Frankenstein once and everyone's like, get the hell out of our town. Don't ever mention that name again. I love that though. I like that. Like maybe more time has passed and like everyone's sort of soured on the concept and they remember there were more bad times than good times with that guy (laughs) around. (laughs) I understand their idea of keeping it low key. So we get a look at the castle. They learn that the last Frankenstein died in that castle. I think the innkeeper mentions that was his burial place. And we get a look at the castle. It's a really cool miniature. I love the miniatures in this movie, by the way. As soon as I saw that dam, I uh, knew it was going to blow in the third act at some point, definitely. It's uh, Chekhov's Dam, uh, I think is what they call that. The castle looks nothing like the castle we've seen. It's got There's a dam behind it now. It's like on a mountainside. But like I said, continuity is not going to get in the way of a good story here. So we just accept that it is, it is the same castle that we saw in The Ghost of Frankenstein. And so with the villagers kind of unwilling to give him any help of any kind, Larry and Maliva head back out. Is it really clear where they're headed? I don't, I don't think they really establish. I think it's just kind of like, He's kind of resigned to his fate of having to live forever as a, as a werewolf. Yeah, yeah. He's sort of like, well, now what? Maybe call one of his two sons? I don't know. There's really no time to think because there's another full moon. This is like three transformations already. It's awesome. Again. Yes. And so if you're going to turn into a werewolf, who better to be with at that time? And I like how she's like, don't go. She's like trying to control him and, and he won't harm her but he won't even he won't listen to her but she is fearless i mean i mean her son was a werewolf surely she can handle larry talbot but like when most people would run the other way she is trying to run after him which i think is a noble pursuit and he does run away and there's an amazing transition between the full moon and the street lamp i was like that caught my eye that was really nice you didn't have to put that in this movie there's no reason for them to be thinking on that level but we had another transformation i feel like they had to have just had this down like a science because we see it change multiple times i have a theory that they did these all the transformations like you know maybe one day after the other they just got them all done in a oh, chunk maybe 
because I just feel like it's something you do to get out of the way or you do it at the end of the shoot or, or something like because it's just so time consuming like why would you stop in the it's like okay we got this scene all right now we need like 48 hours to shoot the transformation it's like all right everybody go like to the beach for two days we'll convene again on Monday or you know what I mean so I don't know my <laughs> yeah. idea was just that like they either waited till the very end of the shoot or they did it at the very beginning I think at the end so that they could refine it and then they just did them one after the other but they look amazing yes and then we get a scene that is very much out of a frankenstein movie vazek the innkeeper is carrying a dead woman and like the, the entire village is following behind him the village is now like seeking justice and it like again this is very much like out of a frankenstein movie even the villagers are like could it be the monster again dwight fry of course suggesting maybe it's the frankenstein monster yeah, so this was like the homage to the little girl with the father marching yes. through the town sequence. And in the prior sequence when they're in the inn, she's like fixing the the light lamp or something yes. like that. And like Larry's kind of looking at her and like she's kind of looking at him. And you would think like maybe he's going to ask her for help. But like, nope, he ends up getting her. And I wrote, Dan, as soon as that shot sort of like came into view, I just wrote, oh, the mob. The mob is here. <laughs> yep. Mob's out. Just have my bingo card, like, all ready to 30 go. minutes in, we got our mob. They first suspected it was the Frankenstein monster, but they were very sure that, that it had been destroyed the last time uh, in the fire. So then now they're starting to wonder, what else could have done this? Well, she had been bitten, right? So it, was, it must have been an animal. Like, well, what could have animal could have done this? And then we hear the iconic wolfman howl off in the distance. Cue the angry mob out into the woods. And now, now the wolfman is getting Frankenstein treatment, right? Like, this yeah, is a yeah. weird role reverse. I love the, the juxtaposition of these two separate worlds coming together here. Yeah, yeah, I was a little worried it might not match, but, you know, what was I thinking? Like, it works so well, especially since, like, the last time we saw the wolfman, there was an angry mob chasing him through the woods, too, wasn't there? Or, like, uh, there was some kind of, like, hunting party for the wolfman. Yeah, there was a posse. Yeah, there was a posse about. So this mimics that as well. I like that. Yeah, it's all just flowing well for me, and I love them chasing through the woods. Like, this sequence goes on way longer than I was expecting. Like, Mm -hmm. you get to see some cool werewolf running around. They're shooting at him. I think they get him, right? Yeah. Yeah, they get him and he's running around and I was like, oh, okay, he's going to, obviously he's going to run up towards the castle, right? Because he's got to meet the monster at some point. But I love how he's running over the ruins and he sort of like falls through the ground and everything. And it's like, oh, that's very interesting. There's like the, the, the basement or the dungeon. Very exciting. Nice action going on here. Yes, agreed. With the wolfman kind of gone, you know, like as you said, he fell through the, the floor and now he's sort of down into the cellar of the old ruins of the Frankenstein castle with him out of the picture the authorities have no choice but to take in maliva and get whatever information out of her that they can the following day larry wakes up he has transformed back into a man and he's in like the snowy frozen crypt of of the frankenstein castle and i love how cold this movie is like all the time the way they project winter time that's a good contrast to all the fire and all the other Frankenstein and monster movies. You get to see like the ice. Yes. Especially because the last time we saw the Frankenstein monster, the Frankenstein mansion was on fire, right? So here we are and he's frozen. 
It's such a cool looking thing too for the scenery as well with the ice sheets and like the water dripping that I feel like is a is a new thing. That's a big horror thing like that almost reminded me of like on a much different scale but like an alien when she's walking through the ship and at points then she gets to like the cargo bay or something and it's just like chains and dripping water. Yep. And it's like just frightening because the water drips and stuff like that. So like that kind of gave me that sense of it's like oh introducing that the water and the ice and everything. I really enjoyed that. It's good. There's something new to see. That's a good point. I, I had never thought about dripping water as a horror aesthetic before, but I think you're hitting on something that's uh, absolutely true. And I think I think you're right. I think it does work really well here. And so we get Larry discovering the Frankenstein monster through like a sheet of ice. From a logistical point of view, it's a little bit strange that he's in this sort of like hollow cavity in the ice. But for the purposes of the story, I think it works. He, he pulls the monster out of the ice. And the monster has been in sort of a state of suspended animation, much like Larry himself in his tomb. Dan, I feel like this is sort of like par for the course for the for the monster. He he seems to always get encased in some form of like carbonite or something. Like <laughs> right. That, right? Surrounded by something to preserve him. Last time it was sulfur. Yeah, last time it was sulfur, but it's always like that kind of cryostasis. We get Bella Lugosi looking great as the monster. Some of the the makeup here, I can see a little bit where they cut a few corners, but for the most part, I think he does look pretty excellent. What's most impressive is that they managed to make Bella like tower over Lon Chaney, who we know is a very big man. Right. I was thinking about that, too. Like, that comes into play a lot. I was like, you know what? I'm not talking at all tonight about how imposing Lon Chaney Jr. looks. And I think you just nailed it. It's because the creature, like, maybe they were doing things throughout the movie to sort of make him feel or look a little smaller, like, subconsciously and stuff. And then so when we get to the monster, he looks even bigger than he should or something in your mind. They're about the same height when they stand next to each other. But, I mean, that's really just when they stand next to each other. I would say in other scenes the Frankenstein monster does look bigger than Lon Chaney and they just have such different body movements too especially when he's Wolfman but even Larry like hunches over a lot and like fiddles and like he's got way more mannerisms than just this stoic monster and so minutes after the Frankenstein monster has been brought back to life I mean he just sort of wakes up right there's no procedure there's nothing Larry has to do to revive him he just sort of comes back to life and within minutes he's asking this monster to help him find the diary of Dr. Frankenstein that dang diary again man right and then the the library there despite the fire and like all of the destruction the library has stayed pretty much intact but i love how this is like a quantum diary that has just like appeared and reappeared and shifted its location on its own movie to movie (laughs) yeah this is theoretically the original diary of henry frankenstein from 1931 or like that the 1931 movie i should say it should have all the amendments by the sons in it at this point yes you would think so. But the sort of hidden drawer with the with the case yields no diary. Not this time. But Larry does find a photo of Elsa signed to my dear father, which gives him a lead, right? So now he knows Frankenstein had a daughter, Elsa, and that's his play. So he does like this really weird, it's not necessarily a con per se, but he goes through what I felt was way more trouble than necessary to meet Elsa. To get a meeting with her? Yeah. So what he does is he organizes to meet with her under the guise of being a man named Lawrence Taylor, who is interested in buying her father's property. 
wasn't Lawrence Taylor like a very popular football player during like the 80s and 90s? LT? Yep, you're right. Football player. So under the guise of being Lawrence Taylor, he manages to get a meeting with her to discuss the sale of the old homestead. Yeah, and I was like, with what money? You got nothing. Until I realized it was a, he, he confesses it's like a ruse. I was like, yeah, something's up with this. Yeah, the ruse doesn't last very long. But let's not get too far. This is where we get to see Lionel Atwill. He's finally introduced to the film. And yes, he, he introduces Larry and Elsa. And as he steps out of the room, Larry kind of pretty much just comes clean with her uh, right away. Lets her know that what he's interested in is her father's diary. And to which she responds that she has no idea where they are. And if she did know that she would have destroyed them because they did nothing but, you know, ruin her family. It's uh, it's only brought terror. I believe is the term that she uses. But man, Larry, like he comes clean halfway. He still doesn't say his name is Talbot. But like this is a lot, right? It's like I want I want your father's diary on the creature. Like what did he expect her to say? Uh, yeah, sure, no problem. This is maybe the one time I'm watching the movie going like, oh, I wish they had something a little smoother going on here. And I always feel like even in Wolfman One when he was a peeping Tom, they just can't figure a way to make Larry charming. I guess. Right. I don't, you know, like, he's, he's just very imposing all the time. Yeah, well, he's a man under severe stress, like, 100% of the time, so he's not a charmer. Yeah, and this scene is kind of clunky, now that I think about it, because it transitions from that sort of awkward conversation into the mayor inviting them both to this celebration they're going to have down in the village later that night. Festival of the New Wine. Yeah, they need, to, they need to cram a lot of this information all in at the same time. So the mayor invites them to this community event, and they both agree to, to be there. And I think Larry's pretty much just agreeing because he knows Elsa's going to be there, and, and maybe he can convince her then. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know who else showed up to this event is everybody who was at the studio that day because we need all hands on deck. So many people crammed into this frame. It is amazing the amount of movement going on. Like, astonishing. So cool. And we get, like, a whole song and dance number almost. <laughs> That's right. It's not quite a musical, but it is a guy singing for a lengthy period. Of, I, think he's sing I think he sings the whole song. Yeah, it's it's the closest thing we've got to like an original song like this with his Pharaoh Lee, Pharaoh La kind of thing. Yes. This is maybe the one scene in the movie that I would have cut down because I think that to go through the whole song like this really kind of slows the momentum. But it is fun. It is fun. Yeah, and I think you don't expect this song to go where it goes. I didn't expect this song to go where it goes. You just sort of expect it to end, but then the guy comes over to Larry and starts singing to him, calling him out kind of about, without even realizing it, like singing about him. And Larry's like freaking out. He's like, shut up, shut up. It's <laughs> like, why are you singing that stupid song? I can't take it anymore. Let's see what the lyrics are. This guy starts singing to Elsa and Larry as they sit at this table. And the lyrics of the song that he's singing go, To them I toast, come drink with me, that may they ever happy be, and may they live eternally. Oh, that was the line that got him. Live eternally. He's like, 
Why would I want to do that? I want to die. I want to die. <laughs> right. For a man who is doomed to live for eternity as a horrifying beast, that is not what Larry wants to hear right now. And then the second part of that is, for life is short, but death is long. And that's where Larry screams in his face. Stop that. Stop that. And throws the biggest tantrum and pretty much ruins the song for everybody. And then that's when Mannering shows up. Okay, so this is where I feel like the Dr. Mannering character gets stretched a little bit thin. This is in hindsight, right? Considering the other hats he has to wear over the course of this movie, this should have been Inspector Owen. However, they need Mannering back in his life for the third act of this movie. Yeah. So I almost feel like the two of them should have appeared. Like if the, if the two of them were working together, Mannering trying to find his patient, Owen trying to find this, you know, murder suspect. Definitely, especially since this is the scene that I referenced earlier where Mannering found him by reading newspapers and seeing the trail of death and destruction that they've kind of left in their wake without even realizing it. You know, I guess that was during most of the montage, but it would have made a lot more sense to have the inspector here. And I and I like them as the duo. So when he just shows up here alone, I'm a little like, all right, maybe the inspector's got other things to do. He goes from like doctor to detective and then later to scientist. So now narratively it doesn't make the most sense and it would have been cool to see a little more out of inspector owen just because like you said i think they make a good pair oh this is also the part where um he's like explaining to mannering where he's like uh you know all i if i can just find dr frankenstein's diary and then the the innkeeper with the dead daughter overhears that i think that that becomes a little important yes and then before the party can really get too far the frankenstein monster makes his way into town it's awesome. I don't know that it makes as much sense as I would like it to, but it does allow for a pretty fun sort of stunt sequence. And so while everybody's freaking out, Larry Talbot manages to calm the Frankenstein monster, like, hey, it's me, you know, grabs him, and then gets him on this cart, which is full of barrels of wine, and then, like, hightails it straight out of town. And the way they shot this, they shoot a lot of it in, in wide angles, right? Like, it's not like they're quick-cutting and, and with close-ups. They had to really, like, get onto this cart and then, like, speed out of town. And I think it looks really good. Yeah, I love the controlled chaos on screen. It it feels very good and sort of like messy and, you know, it's good panic. And whereas I agree, it's kind of just awkward that the monster sort of strolls into town, I guess. But like, it's like there was some kind of note pegged to the screenwriter's wall, whereas like every 10 minutes, every 10 minutes, like it's, it's like a mandate now or like was, you know, in certain horror movies where it's like, if you don't show like nudity or a kill, you know, and it feels like sort of that where it's like we haven't seen a wolfman or or a monster in like a good five or six minutes like cue the monster i i must love that about this movie too if there's one thing that i wish had been done uh, a little better it's that the frankenstein monster doesn't really have a whole lot to do and i think that cutting a lot of his dial or cutting all of his dialogue may have had something to do with that and so this scene very much feels like you said that somebody thought all right we haven't seen this this character in a while let's throw him in here he doesn't necessarily belong in this scene the way it's it's constructed and and maybe if the monster was speaking that the the story would make a little more sense but as it is just kind of feels like they're filling a quota and just getting the the frankenstein monster on screen some more i mean either way i think the sequence is fun to watch and and i like they really like the stunt with the wagon 
Yeah, and and my mind just goes to the idea that, well, Larry's not around to kind of control him or tell him what to do or stay in there. So, like, he just kind of wandered around for, you know, uncontrollable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. that's his kind of thing, too. That's sort of the M.O. of the monster anyway. It's like, don't go out hiking one morning because he's just out there wandering around. Sure. Well, now the village knows. The scene does establish that, that the villagers are now aware that the Frankenstein monster is not dead and he's still a threat. And so now, like, with Larry and the monster out of town, the village sort of descends on this inn and decides what they're going to do. Yeah, the big town meeting with the mob and the cops and not the mafia, the actual mob of people. Yes. Oh, yeah. Like, like almost the entire town, which will become the mob later on, is is all in this scene. And the mayor is doing his best. I think, you know, like uh, Lionel Atwell is doing his best to maintain peace and order. Yeah, he's like the only one trying not to kill somebody. You know, he's like, he's the only person who is level head. That's maybe that's why he's the mayor. But yeah, he is. He wants to ask Elsa for help. There's got to be another way. Yes. So the mayor brings Elsa in front of the, the angry mob and they begin to question her. And to her credit, she's not really resisting, right? She's like, hey, I, I know where the castle is. I know the ins and outs of those like catacombs. I can take you up there and we can be done with this right now. But they are not ready to believe her she is a frankenstein not to be trusted and so then they speak to maliva and like this mob is is just so convinced that elsa and maliva are like in cahoots with frankenstein and the wolfman like the whole thing yeah i think at one point the mayor's just like guys we got to use our brains for once i love vazek like basically tells him to fuck off like we're not listening to you we're going to take care of this ourselves so Dr. Mannering, Elsa, and Maliva make their way up to the ruins of, of the castle, where Larry is just kind of like waiting, biding his time. This is where Elsa actually shows him where the diary is, right? Yeah, yeah, they should have known. There's a secret passage behind the secret passage. She realizes that the townspeople are just an angry mob, not going to be much help. And so she comes up to help Larry and reveals like there's like a hidden compartment within the hidden compartment, right? And that's where the old diaries are. Leave it to Frankenstein's furniture, like to have the multiple secret compartments, you know, they go, they go wild on that stuff. I love this sequence here that the monster's sort of like the guard dog in a way, yeah. like yep. to the castle where it's like, no one shall pass. And then Larry's like, no, they're friends. And they're like, all right, you can come in and stuff. And, and it's really interesting for Elsa to see the monster too. I like them in the room together. Yes. If we weren't like ready for these two to like fight at some point, I would love to like that the like Larry and the Frankenstein monster were like buds. And then maybe they're the two that like travel from movie to movie together, you know, like Rocket Raccoon and Groot, you know, just <laughs> getting into adventures together. There's a bit of that dynamic here, I guess. <laughs> a, a, a little bit, yeah. But Elsa finds the diary. And in his research, Dr. Mannering discovers a lot of the original Frankenstein's work involved channeling energy into matter, right? And Mannering believes that he can undo the effects of that work by sort of withdrawing all of that energy from the source, right? So in theory, sort of like a, like a battery, like draining the battery of, of its energy, right? So if he can pull that energy out of Larry Talbot, it should, in theory, kill him for good. And the plan is to do this same procedure to the Frankenstein monster as well and just eliminate both of them at the same time. 
they got all this equipment. Doc looks around. He's like, I think we could fix this stuff. I know how to tie these wires together. And this is where I'm going. Yeah, we could have maybe used like a little shout that you had some kind of engineering experience <laughs> or something earlier on. And then they're like, Elsa's got this look on her face like, this is all wrong. <laughs> this is crazy. You know, if she was, if her character was a man, like she would put an end, it's like she'd be able to put an end to all this right now because that is what it's like written all over her face. You know, I'm with her. Mannering is going to be like intoxicated by the curse of Frankenstein, for lack of a better word. Like the idea of that godliness right like bringing something to life or whatever like he ends up changing the experiment because he gets like drunk with power you know like yeah, and, yes. and elsa has seen this she knows it's destroyed her family and stuff so she's like this is not cool <laughs> his transformation from well-meaning doctor and i guess scientist now into like megalomaniac crazed scientist is so fast you know like henry frankenstein didn't become mad scientist for quite a while right i mean it, it wasn't until like the second movie but here it's like that that change needs to happen like that so it's a little bit unbelievable that he would suddenly in the, i mean we're, we haven't gotten to this scene yet but like that that he would uh suddenly be like you know what I, I can't do this i have to know i just don't buy that fundamental character change that quickly yeah i'm with you it's a lot like i love the concept you know i just feel like lay a little more groundwork it's there you could have him at the sanitarium doing electroshock stuff they were doing that in ghost of frankenstein that kind mm -hmm. of thing i think or they were experimenting so like you could work it in a little bit earlier and it would have been fine but yeah he is uh what, what could you say he just he's enthusiastic this guy <laughs> so before we get too far back down in the town in the village they, they start to notice carts full of supplies are headed up to the frankenstein castle and of course they're all inherently suspicious about what could be going on up there and this is where the innkeeper starts to sow the seeds of what will become the finale of this movie yeah, I like this. He lays this out for the audience when Vazic is like, the castle's built on the river and the river powers the turbines. And if we blow the dam, it'll wash it all away and everything. And people think that's a little dramatic. Yeah. But the mayor is completely trusting of Mannering and Elsa. And he's kind of trying to sway the, the room, right? Like, hey, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's trust them. It'll be okay. But this town has just kind of had it with Frankensteins and don't trust them farther than they can throw them. Yeah, the phrase is, let them all drown like rats. It's like thrown around the room. Yes. And even when Vazek illustrates his plan to go up to the dam and blow it up so that the river will destroy the castle and, like you said, quote, drown them all like rats, the mayor kind of shuts that down and won't hear anything else about it. So the town is left kind of to wait and see, I guess. That actually adds tension I wasn't expecting, you know, because like there's so many moments in this movie where, well, maybe not so many, but there was that moment earlier when, when Larry and Maliva like are rejected from anybody helping him. And they're like, well, now what do we do? And it is truly like, yeah, what? what do you do like where is this gonna go and then he transforms and like here it's sort of the same thing but with the town where the town is kind of like at the end of their rope and they've done all they can do um so like now they just have to wait and it's very tense and nerve-wracking i bet so thinking about it now i like that more yes 
I agree. So Larry has limited time. Like he needs to have this done tonight because there's going to be a full moon. And if they don't accomplish this, he'll transform and kill some more people. As Mannering is, is setting up the equipment and getting everything ready for the procedure, Elsa makes sort of one last ditch effort to warn him of the power that this knowledge has had over her family and how it's sort of destroyed everyone who has had their hands in it. But Mannering insists that he's gonna draw the power out of both Talbot and the monster and be done with it. She's coming out and saying like, dude, don't mess with this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's like a drug. Like he's like, no, trust me, I'm gonna clear your name and everything's gonna be fine and we're gonna do this right. And like, as soon as he like turns on the instruments and, and everything gets fired up and everything, he's like, I can't do that. I have to see where this goes. He's like, there's no way I could not do this. It's like, you're standing right on the edge. How do you not like jump, right? Like that is so tempting. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's not believable that somebody could suddenly change at the last second, but but like I was saying before, I think that his transformation is way too quick to be totally believable. But I mean, they're onto the gun here. Like the clock's ticking and he only has so much time. So I'm kind of used to things wrapping up quick in these movies too. Oh, yeah. Like that and like people's personality shifting. But part of me thinks like this was him all along. This was inside of the character from the beginning somewhere. Maybe if I go back and watch it. And we also don't know on that like expedition to find Larry all the kind of stuff he might have had to go through too. So he could have gotten like a little harder, a little angrier, a little crazier, you know, more. He's definitely obsessed. One way or the other, he's obsessed with this situation. So now to be like such an integral part part of it you know he's probably ecstatic the more i think about it the more i think that it would be unfair to criticize him as a mad scientist i think that maybe what it is is it comes from pure curiosity like scientific and intellectual curiosity that this was accomplished and he wants to see it with his own eyes he doesn't come across as like evil he doesn't have designs on world domination or any of that kind of stuff he genuinely just wants to see if this is going to work we as the audience we know how dangerous this is we've seen it fail four times now so as the experiment is underway he has decided not to let the monster die he's going to see it at full strength he can't resist his own curiosity and so as things are underway the people down in the village start to notice the strange goings on up at the castle frankenstein there's flashing lights and all kinds of activity and they want to know what is going on so as they make their way up the side of the castle uh vazek also makes his way up to the dam he's decided that mayor be damned he's going to go up there and, and put it into this once and for all mayor be damned <laughs> so at the same time we've got a full moon we're in the middle of the experiment. The monster starts to wake back up. Larry starts to transform once again into his werewolf form. And that is where everything turns to shit. Yeah, all hell breaks loose. Like like Elsa rushes in and catches Dr. Frank and tries to like stop the experiment. But, but the monster's been like supercharged and Larry's transformed. And it's just like, get the hell out of there, people. Yeah, this is, this is a, like the editing here is so fantastic. It really does a great job of building that tension. We've got like three or four points of view all sort of happening at the same time. Like I don't feel ever that the action here is muddled. I think everything is very clear and exciting and this is maybe the best 10 minutes of the movie 
This is very exciting and very on point. Maybe one of the best conclusions to one of these movies that we've had since the windmill. I really like the way it's edited. I really like all the way that the characters converge here. Obviously the monster fight is terrific. We talked about it earlier, but what I really like too is that like everybody finally sees the Wolfman. Elsa sees it, Dr. Frank sees it, and it's like, ah, finally, like at the end the truth is revealed and yes. he wasn't kidding. He I mean he wasn't kidding, but like he wasn't lying. It's like one of those great moments I just need Ken Watanabe to be like, let them fight. <laughs> And, and considering, like, I'm thinking about the alternate ending, you know, the original ending, uh, as I mentioned before, the Wolfman escaped first, and it was the Frankenstein monster who sort of, like, rescued Elsa. I don't know that I would have enjoyed that as much. I kind of like it better here, because, you know, Larry is a sympathetic character, and I don't know that I would love him being the aggressor here at the end. But then again, the, the Frankenstein monster is also pretty sympathetic. But by this point, he hasn't been played with, like, a shit ton of emotion, right? Like, the, the Karloff era has long gone and now this frankenstein monster exists to be a a brute character uh, a servant for somebody else there's less to sacrifice with the frankenstein monster by making him kind of a villain at the end and i feel like this version reacts a lot more on instinct maybe than previous ones too because he's like lost some of his senses maybe it's just like oh like grab this person and try and get the hell out of here or something like not really sure what's happening in this situation probably panicking as well it's just so thrilling like i got like that thrill watching this i've been like this is freaking exciting and i don't mean to paint the wolfman as like a hero of any kind here because he's purely acting on on instinct but he's sort of like a de facto hero in that he saves Elsa by going after the Frankenstein monster, right? So this fight, man, like this is the most animalistic we have seen the Wolfman because typically in previous scenes, he sort of attacks somebody, they go limp and cut to the next scene. But here he's in full out brawl mode. Lab equipment goes flying. He's doing like jumps off of big tall equipment. They're rolling around on the ground. Like this, this sequence is just so much fun to watch. And there's some moments in there where I was legitimately concerned for the stunt actors. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a universal monster movie if I wasn't concerned for the stunt performers by any means. <laughs> Everyone is just really gung-ho and like there's so much energy just behind the spirit of this. And I couldn't imagine what it was like to see this for the first time in the theater, especially as like a kid or something. And I mean, I didn't get to see this for the first time as a kid. Some of my brain would have probably like ended up on the floor, too. But like it's, it's really great to see the Wolfman fight Frankenstein's monster. They really pulled it off. And I, I like how we got here and it feels like wrestlemania to me like it feels like SummerSlam or something like this is a big card and we have two very interesting characters here duking it out and doing it right and i'm just yeah i'm just more pleased than anything else we liked a lot of stuff about the last couple movies you know they weren't terrible per se but like this is on another level like they found something else here by what i can't believe started as a joke it's like once you see them on screen together matching in the same universe it's like yes we found something and like i guess movies were never the same again i don't know i think that's what really um does it for me with this one this probably wasn't a very expensive movie to make, but you wouldn't necessarily know it to look at it. I think that all the money was spent in the right places. This looks 
and feels in a lot of ways like a big A picture for Universal. And I think it stays true to both of our main characters, right? Like it neither feels out of place. I think it perfectly marries the themes and the aesthetics of both. So like so much about it just feels right to me. And then the payoff at the end is, is, is there. So like if the fight at the end wasn't there or if it was like a bait and switch, if it hadn't been as good as it is, I feel like that's where this movie would have really fell short, right? Like that fight at the end needed to be great. And it is. I love the, the miniature work. I love the, like just the cascading water through the roof. I'm trying to imagine being a, an actor on set, having to get through that scene, fighting through like water pouring down from the ceiling. I love the miniature work when the dam explodes and you get the frame rate change and it just because that also that reminds me like of like the Godzilla stuff like it yep. reminded me like you know it, it looked like a lot like a Godzilla movie at that point a little bit of every technique going on here. yeah so I mean that's the end of the movie pretty much I mean the villagers down below kind of watch it all take place from a distance and then we get the end I kind of like that, that you get a shot of the town watching the destruction from afar. That was a very interesting final shot. One of the final shots that was cool. They almost get their like torch and pitchfork angry mob moment, right? But before they get a chance, the dam breaks open and uh, everything's destroyed. So like they're kind of not given that opportunity. So I, I do like that the movie subverts that expectation a little bit. Yeah. Sorry, Mob. Next time. So I think with that, that's a good spot to wrap up. Is there anything that you wanted to mention? Anything that you didn't get to? I mean, I didn't really want to talk much more about the movie. I think I said everything. We talked about it a lot. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to enjoy about this movie. Like, I was so pleased. And by the end, I was just so excited that this was the way it was. Like, I was looking at my rating after on Letterboxd, and it was way lower than I remembered. And I was like, wow, that's kind of surprising. But, I mean, you know, we are on this journey, and we are watching them in order. So maybe that added a bit to it. But I got to say, man, like, they really pulled this off better than I was expecting like way better than I was expecting and totally way different than I remembered I don't even have a memory of this the first time I watched this movie this must have been so long ago you know I think they do this better than they do nowadays in a lot of attempts okay like uh, I mean Freddy vs. Jason worked out really well some people like the alien vs. predator I, I enjoy it there aren't a lot of these crossovers happening outside of superhero movies these days and I feel like that's a little unfortunate we did get the new Kong vs. Godzilla but you know I want to see Michael Myers and Chucky going at it or something like that too you know I want the uh, pinhead to go hang out at Camp Crystal Lake one day I don't know but I love the spirit of this movie I love what it meant and did for horror moving forward or or just genre pictures in general and the idea of shared universes what have you all of that kind of stuff way back then is it was great to see. It was a whole lot of fun. So, Dan, this is this was maybe one of my favorite movies yet. Yeah, I, I agree. I've said it multiple times already, but like, you know, we, we could pick this movie apart if we really wanted to. But it does so much so well that I, I'd feel like it would be unfair to get that deep into the weeds. Because at the end of the day, I, I just have a good time watching this. And I think that anybody who likes these characters, anybody who loves Frankenstein, the Wolfman, you, you know, you want to see them brought together for the first time. This movie will do it and it does it really well. One thing you said that really kind of hit me is like this movie is very true to these characters. You know, yep. they may not follow the continuity perfectly, but it does the best that it can trying to make it all work together. And these are those characters. And this is 
how they would react. So you're right. I like that idea about this. I think that if they had tried to, you know, morph the Frankenstein monster into something he wasn't or had done something with the Wolfman, you know, like if they had tried to change the character to fit a story they wanted to tell, that would have played very differently for me. I think I would have liked that a lot less. But because Lon Chaney just plays Larry Talbot so well, like, again, I think this is the best he maybe ever does it and 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 bella does as well as he can with the frankenstein monster you know like by this point it wasn't his fault right the monster was kind of heading in this direction anyway when when lon chaney took him over he's true to the character in that sense it's unfortunate that the production wasn't really tailored to benefit him all that much but i mean he does a solid job here and again for me it all comes down to the the climax and the payoff at the end and uh it has that about as well as it as it could so i really have a hard time finding a lot of serious problems with this one so all right with that i think it's time for us to head back down into our crypt but we'll be back on friday march 25th for universal's 1943 musical remake of phantom of the opera starring the great claude rains in the meantime you can follow us on twitter at monster made pod on instagram and facebook at the monsters that made us and you can email us at the monsters that made us at gmail.com you can follow me on twitter at dan cologne mike where can listeners find you you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Mikester, and you can hear all the other shows I'm on over at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. I feel like that's a good time to mention that we did an episode of your other show, Third Time's a Charm. So if it's not available yet, it will be available soon. You can listen to Mike and I talk about King Kong versus Godzilla, the original Japanese and American productions. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the show you can become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash the monsters that made us you can also support us by giving us a five-star rating and review on itunes which helps more people discover the show and we can't forget about our t-shirts on t public you can find the link for that in our aforementioned twitter and instagram bios for all other things cage club related including third times a charm just head on over to cageclub.me that's cageclub.me stay spooky everybody mm-hmm.